0: Stick the stick the Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I hope you haven't given up on me getting a podcast out this week. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I didn't think I'd get this one out myself. I've been kind of under the weather, so to speak, ever since posting my last program. And once the pain and agony part was over, I was left with practically no energy, and I've been kind of lethargic these past few days. So when I finally fired up my computer and logged into the net this morning, it wasn't with the expectation that I'd get a podcast out today. But then I checked my email, and I had a whole bunch of wonderful emails from some of our fellow Saloners waiting for me. And on top of that, I discovered that several of you have very generously made donations to keep these podcasts coming. And uh, so now I'm fired up once again, and I'll keep them coming. So my thanks go out to all of you who have written, and especially to Janusgate Creative, James H., Jason H., John M., Michael, better known as a dime short, William R., and Bailey, otherwise known as Beaded Bohemian. And I also want to thank Yarov. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Yarov uh, sent a donation last February, and while I thanked him in an email, I don't think I remembered to mention him in one of the programs. Sorry about that, Yarov. I very much appreciate your support. In fact, the generosity of all of you touches me deeply so much in fact that you have succeeded in restoring my energy to the point where I once again feel like coming back here to the salon to be with so many of my good friends. I guess one of my motivational issues is that there's so much to talk about regarding some of the comments our fellow saloners have sent in that I just kind of keep putting off recording this week's program until I feel more like talking for a while. So I'm going to get back up to speed in stages and by that I mean I'm right now going to take the easy route and play the second tape from the June 8th trialogue with Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake. The tape runs about an hour and 20 minutes, but I'm only going to play part of it right now, and then I'll finish it off in a shorter supplemental podcast in a few days, where hopefully I'll quit procrastinating and also read some of the interesting emails I've been receiving. So let's get to it, and uh, join the Merry loggers in yet another of their famous conversations.
1: Um, well, Monday, this Monday, June Eight. 8, 1998, two-ish the in the afternoon, Trialogue number two. Okay. Family
2: fields. I'm interested, as you know, in the fields of social groups, flocks of birds, schools of fish and packs of wolves, groups of human beings. And I think all of these have morphic fields, and I think that the morphic fields underlying schools of fish, flocks of birds, insect colonies, help organize the movements of the different animals within them. And the ones in packs of wolves enable them to keep in contact with each other over many miles. I think these fields underlie the telepathic bonds between wolf and wolf, or between um, separated animals and other separated animals and the same things apply in the human realm Telepathy mainly occurs in the human realm between mothers and daughters sons parents children close friends lovers and the great majority of spontaneous telepathic cases do not involve guessing xeno cards in darkened rooms but rather feeling of a sense of emergency by a mother she calls home and the child's had an accident um, someone feeling a sudden disturbance and, and suddenly flash about somebody feeling they're in great distress or some sense of alarm it turns out they've died this kind of thing this is true of dogs and cats too it's mostly to do with these sorts of feelings that is involved emergencies, alarms and so forth rather than with the transfer of visual information for its own sake anyway these fields I think underlie all social groups and In the dog and owner thing, I'm looking at the fields between pets and their owners. But when we look at human families, these fields should also be at work in the human family. It could be a classic example of a a social field. In chimpanzee groups, in horse groups, um, these live as family groups usually, um, female with children and an associated male. Sometimes young males they're free of the social group in many species they do but they're very often family based groups horse groups usually no more than about five in wild and feral horses Um, wolf packs are usually female with her cubs and a male and then some sort of grown up more grown up wolves but they're family groups and so in human family groups we'd expect the same kind of morphic field Now, this is rather a general and abstract kind of consideration, Uh, but it would mean that family fields with their morphic fields would have a kind of memory from the families that contributed to them, the father and mother's families of origin would come together in a family. You'd have the the, the husband and wife, the father and mother. You've got a fusion of, always a fusion of family fields coming together into a given family one with their histories and patterns. And... In fact, a whole science or therapy or practice of family fields has been worked out in recent years in Germany by, I think, the most interesting therapeutic um, person I've come across for a long time, uh, Bert Hellinger. Have you heard of Hellinger? No. H-E-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Hellinger's work is extremely well-known in Germany. It has a large influence, and there's a great deal of interest in his work he has people following his methods and so on uh, Hellinger is, used to be a Benedictine he then went or perhaps as a Benedictine went to Africa where he spent a long time living with the Zulu and although he says this isn't the direct influence on his therapy the sense of the ancestral connection that the Zulu have and tradition traditional people have the role of the ancestors is a ma- major part of his therapy Anyway, he does. He. I've been to one of his things in London, and I'm meeting him again soon. And I've become quite friendly with him and his followers, because the main theory they use to try and understand what's going on in these family fields is morphogenetic fields, morphic fields. So they think it's the, the different theories or models. They think
1: He's box. a therapist of human families,
2: yes, or what? Human families. Mm-hmm. Um, that. They think this is the most appropriate kind of model. You need a field that links the members of the group together, and there has to be a kind of memory in it. That's what they want, and that's what their family fields are. And morphic fields are that. I mean, there may be other fields that could perhaps give the same effect. But anyway, so that's why I, I was interested in their work and, and their interests in mine. And I have been to their, and I've been very impressed by um, telling this work. How it works is that you have somebody who comes and they present their problem, they tell Hellinger, this is done in a group with a lot of people in a kind of audience, and they say what their problem is, and why they're upset or disturbed or something, and then he asks them to constellate their family field, and what that means is that he asks them, your mother, your father, how many brothers and sisters, and so forth, then he says, now please pick anyone to be your mother. And they pick someone from your pick anyone to your father, they pick them, you know, your brothers and so on, but the members of their primary family and their family of origin. And then he asked them to arrange them in order, put, place them. And when they place On, placed, the, stage, on the stage, sitting in chairs and sort no, of tableau standing. As yeah. uh, sort of like a tableau, yes. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, you get the most interesting things. You see how some people are placed close to each other, facing each other, some are placed on the periphery, sort of facing away and the rest of the family. And these people can make models. Each one is completely different and quite surprising, these models. Mm. I saw two or three days of this and a whole series of different family models. And you see these extraordinary patterns, uh, which immediately, for the person there, this is their best representation of the, the family field from the family they come from. But when you see this, it's a whole gestalt, like a snapshot of... A system of relationship, who's close together, who's further away, who's facing who, who's related to whom. And um, sometimes this is so obviously sort of dispersed and not in relationship, but then the question is how did, if that one's right out there, sort of facing their back to the rest of you me, know, what's happened, why are they there, not sort of closer to the others, and what dynamics are involved in this whole family group. And in order to understand that, he often has to go to the family of origin as the father or the mother in the family field. So then he'll ask the person to constellate the father's family field, for example. And then, you know, they, so they pick someone to be the father, and then if the father had two or three brothers, the brothers and the father, the parent, and they have to put them where they were. They, and sometimes they don't know that well, so they have to guess, but they constellate this field. And it often turns out that the pattern in that first family field is mirrored in the second one. You can see, you can just see it in front of you. in you know, similar patterns. Uh, it sometimes happens that something extraordinary happened in the first field. Say, for example, an uncle drowned as a as a boy. You know, a, a ten year old boy in that family was killed, drowned in a pond. And then they have they often leave them out. And he then says, was there anybody in this family? that died as a child or that died at birth quite often they say yes he says find someone put them in and very often the whole imbalance in the field is rectified when the missing member is put in even if it's say someone who committed suicide or a child that died in infancy in a previous family field unacknowledged members of the group cause grave distortions to the system and his method by putting them in Creates a a whole field, sort of can be rearranged. He then rearranges these fields by. So what would happen if Sensei was brought in? He asked the person, "Bring them into there, bring them into there." And then in the father's field, uh, ask them to acknowledge the child that died, and put them in. And then the child, they they say, "We acknowledge you." The people actually say, "We acknowledge you." And then they put the child that died in the right order of children right in their place between the firstborn, the second born, and the third born because the order of birth has a huge impact on these fields and the number of siblings so here you have a system practically used by Hellinger and his followers a, fa- a fascinating thing and when you see these missing members and the field constitution and then the, the family of origin of the person that field is sort of readjusted to see a whole field pattern and their role within the field pattern is incredibly therapeutic and in the releasing for a lot of people. They see that a lot of problems they thought were just their problems are actually their relations to this whole field of interaction in the family. So they take seriously a field model of this process, and with these sort of tableau representations, one can see this. And so that made me think whatever the merits or demerits of having a system, which I think is very interesting and apparently very effective, um, the idea of making models of family fields seems to me something that one could address in a more general sense because there would be certain patterns of dynamics you'd expect if you have a family consisting of mother, father, and then one child, the simplest ones, two, three, four, five. What kinds of Flows of energies. Some of this would be kind of common sense. In eldest children, and in relation to second children, most people who have had two children say that the eldest ones were more troubled as babies, harder to deal with, the younger ones are somehow much easier to get on with. But then you get this kind of rivalries growing up, sibling rivalries, and so on. Then, families, more complex family fields where you have stepfathers or stepmothers, brothers and sisters, then you get on his stage that you get these very complicated family fields. Um, what happens in those in real life those are common nowadays so one could make certain models of these fields one could also see how the balance the, the, the balance of energies. So if you have a field model like this and you take someone who's in the model move them further away in whatever space you've modeled in and turn them to face out from the rest of the family what kind of dynamics happens there with the rest of them what happens to them in any group into which they enter Some any new family they form how what effect does this have one could perhaps model this kind of thing so i wanted to suggest that maybe it's possible to make this family field thing more scientific investigate it further make models and in some way perhaps come up with tests or empirical studies that could further the science or uh, investigation of family fields
1: Hmm. well that certainly sounds very interesting i'm not sure I understand to what degree the use of the word field is justified here and um, do, do they think of uh, like an extended spatial field, like the gravitational field or something that is associated with with the family and the individuals have a field like a vibrating aura or something? Or does it just mean the field in a general sense that could be described? Uh, let us say just by giving for any two individuals in the family some strength of the connection, plus or minus or something, that would be represented in the tableau when the the actors are placed on the stage uh, by the geographical distance to them or something, so that bringing one member in closer would correspond in this model to just strengthening the, communi- the bandwidth of the communication channel or the positivity of the regard or some other like simple parameter. Mm. that would be a more of a connectionist model with like a um, undirected graph with nodes and links and so on. Is it like links between the people could be just represented by a number or would it be essential in order to understand the experiences of they're? to actually have a kind of extended three-dimensional spatial field around each individual that has memory and so on.
2: Well, maybe a connectionist thing with nodes would be an adequate model. But then you could say that what con- the connections, the nodes, you could just sort of draw a line around the whole thing and say this was a set mm. of connections or something, which would be perhaps just a different way of trying to model the field. Um, you see, the connections insofar as you draw it, say there's a connection A, B, and it has a given strength you're presupposing an invisible bond between people yes. that would work when the other person is in the next room at the very least and therefore you're proposing a bond which whose reality is not physical in the normal sense it may be mental, emotional, uh, psychic I mean whatever word you choose but it's not sort of smell, touch, hearing I mean those are involved if you're in the same room and so the, re- the advantage of the field model is it frees you up from thinking that the connections must be normal face-to-face
1: communication, that they can still exist even if you're apart. I see. So the, the family field, the flock, the school, and so on, is, is kind of a extrapolation backwards of psychic pets into more the psychic bonds in the wild.
2: Well, I think that the bonds, even between members of the family, you know, when people go away and they're... They, they, they want, like me, I mean, I'm mean, i attached to my family, so from here I feel a strong need to ring up my children to speak to them as they're going to bed even though I'm 6,000 miles away that bond is a straight, strong bond for me, and, well, so, and for most people, if they're nearest, you know, yes. these bonds are not severed by getting on an aeroplane so whatever model you have of the connections, the connections have to be of such a nature that they still persist
1: well, I'm uh, suggesting the... to whatever the model is, to have the same model as the model we have for the psychic pets, because ethologists, or say these therapists, like the animal equivalent of Hellinger, that analyze cats, for example, they describe the relationship of the cat to the owner person as um, uh, a form of the relation of the cat to the cat's mother that's been replaced. The uh, cats, even as they... uh, Age regarded themselves as kittens, as it were, with the owner as the mother cat. Mm-hmm. The way they play and rub against you, and so on, is, are, are derived behaviors from what um, the cat version of a would describe as the family field on the cat yes. level. And, and therefore, if we, are as we have been, uh, been thinking about mathematical models for the the field uh, that describes the attachment of the cat and owner, then we would be tempted to use the same model for the family field, in the human family, for example, or Flutter yes. Sheep, and so on, and that would be then uh, some kind of, well, telepathy is the word, I think, or a non-specific uh, communication channel between people or animals at a distance.
2: Yes, although telepathic communications wouldn't need to be passing between it all the so Maybe a connectionist model would be fine, yes. as long as you leave open the nature of the connection. So that the connection is it doesn't have to be presupposed to depend on mm. normal sensory communication and probably in a, in
1: a in a neural net if you took one of it and it was capable of say parsing natural speech or something, and then you took one of the nodes out or broke one of the connections and wouldn't be able to do that anymore so this uh, the connectionist model might be adequate for uh, modeling this having a strategy of bringing in the missing sibling or something replacing the node and the connections which make a functional unit
2: yes Mm. or what what would have happened is before the sibling died the family field had a different structure because it included that sibling if the, the death of the sibling changes the field but his point is unless it's acknowledged and unless in some sense the ancestors are acknowledged and unless the dead sibling is acknowledged and recognized within the field. Their presence within the field is recognized. Their unrecognized presence can cause terrible disturbances. So some used to recognizing a kind of virtual
1: node in the field. I don't see how that would be. I don't know how to model that. How could that be important? There? What, is, what is this recognition consist of? So you are a fish. Okay, now you have recognized you as a fish Is it would...
3: They're coupled oscillators and the family thing works because people really are complex chemical systems with genetic affinities. Uh, You could even suppose a kind of physical mechanism. They are coupled oscillators that impart uh, their waveform to the local space which encounters the waveforms of these other oscillators which are very similar to them physically more similar to them than any other person or thing and so there's a kind of entrainment often the things are these feeling toned, something has happened to someone, or I should call it <coughs> So it indicates they are like coupled oscillators. So the
1: recognition, the non-recognition means well, the oscillators are coupled, and therefore this one is, and then it's not understood, because we're not aware of My father's sister, Carrie, died when he was young, so she was never even a person to was She's not real. Uh, if I had um, interactions with a place in some structure, say, our family field where she belonged, but I didn't acknowledge it, then I would always be confused about what's going on in my life, something like that.
2: Yes. Because the whole (coughs) structure of the family field is... You see that if it had, bec- or you see there's a kind of memory in these fields, and so the the fields and the, s- the dynamics of the field are influenced by oh, the memory oh, I see it. Yeah, so of the person who was mm. there but no longer there. And so the memory is actually working in the dynamics of the field because all these fields have this kind of memory. But if you don't recognise it's there, you don't understand what's really going on in the interactions, and you're always in the dark as to why certain puzzling conflicts or whatever, are, or suicides. Yeah. There are cases where, amazing cases, where you get members of families, young people, commit suicide in a way that mimics the unacknowledged death of an ancestor, like suicide by drowning, when an ancestor of, uh, one or two generations before has committed suicide by drowning, but they've never been told about it because it's never acknowledged. And you get these extraordinary patterns that repeat, sometimes literal ones like that, other times sort of morphed ones.
1: Maybe we have to think of um, different models for the same thing, so that there would be a, a a model like a connections diagram of a family, as it were, and then there's another drawing for the family as I see it and that if I haven't acknowledged my Aunt Carrie, then in my model of family, there's nothing there. That's right. Uh, but in this other model of actual interactions, it is there. Maybe we need a, a directed graph where the channel between you and me, for example, would have two lines, one going that way as when I speak or send you a message, and another one going this way. Yes, they'd have to be. The connections would have to have sort of direct both directions. So there could be, in the case of a family member who's not acknowledged... That there's a directed line from that one to me because I'm receiving but not knowing. Yes. And then I'm sending nothing back because I'm not acknowledging. Yes. So the, the acknowledgement of a missing family member would, would just consist of the addition into the model of one link going back. That's right.
2: Mm-hmm. That would be enough. And in his in his therapeutic workshops, I mean, where, where he does this for the family, and the whole therapy of the particular person may last half an hour, three quarters of an hour, wouldn't Constellating these fields. And then in these things, he he asked the person to come say that the members of the family have, there's somebody representing them, you see, in the family field. There's somebody standing in for themselves, they're sitting outside it with him. Oh. So say that it was your family field, you choose someone to represent you. Oh, I see. So there'd I be Ralph that. in there. Mm-hmm. And so you're sitting back telling you now see Ralph in relation to us from outside and then you see how oh, he remodeling. it's remodeling yes. and then you see the other ones and he readjusts the field and puts in the absent or oh, yes. members and then he asks the members actually standing there to acknowledge the unacknowledged ones or whatever and then he asks you to go and stand in the position of Ralph in this remodeled field and turn to the unacknowledged one and say you are my aunt, I acknowledge you and turn to the others, and so on, and experience that new constellation from within. And this <coughs> has a dramatically, a dramatically changing effect on family fields. It brings them to consciousness. It recognises these things, and the acknowledgement is done, and it changes them. So. Any model of the fields, you see, would have, I mean the kind of thing you were saying is to apply. You'd have a model of the fields as well as you have a map of it's perceived today. Mm-hmm. And if you're able to bring about the remodel, or at least bring your model of the mm-hmm. field into much more into place, connection with what yes. the field actually is, well, or exactly. was, so then this, this has a therapeutic
1: effect. This is the opposite of institutional therapy, where people go into a corporation, for example, which has... A an actual structure, and then the directors have the model. And instead of changing the model to fit the actuality, they change the actuality to fit the model.
2: Yes, hmm. but they're in a company where you have got, you can actually have a more model of flow diagram of power. I mean, these are sort of artificial organizations. But family organizations, are, um, although there's a kind of archetypal model, like the nuclear family model or something like that, although there are sort of idealized models socially, proved and recognized. Each family is different and each is different in its own way, to paraphrase Tolstoy. You know, Anna Karenina, every happy family is the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, so there's a sense out of
1: shape, as it were. As yes, a framework.
2: The, f- the field is somehow distorted or whatever. So his... His um, model, any model were made would have to take into account those two things. So it's a question of to how far can one just say, well, this is an interesting therapy, it's just one among many, and it's just that this is its particular trip. But how far can one take says so the idea that family dynamics are not an arbitrary invention of having their an obvious reality. And we don't have adequate models for these Family systems and all the influence of ancestors within them, which my interest in morphic resonance makes me very keen on. The fact that there must be this historical
3: memory habit dimension. In them. Well, then the network can be extended indefinitely. It's simply that people outside the family, but in the neighbourhood uh, or in the past, are weakly coupled. Important teachers in primary school. Yes. Things like that. That
2: sort of thing. They're weakly coupled. Yes. Yes. And then you can have, you can have the way that a given, you could then extend this. Arnold Mendel is the person who's pioneered this model in different, in non-family groups. Are you familiar with this one? I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know Arnold mm-hmm. Mendel. But in his book, The Year One, he talks about the modeling of social groups, how you have a social group and that each social group is a kind of organism. And therefore there'll be different roles taken up by different people within the group. And in lots of groups, for example, that we tend to be somebody who's a grumbler or a complainer and who sort of focuses and vocalises the sort of grumble, takes on the role of making complaints which other people in the group might be too shy or too restrained to make but somehow they have made. And then they can also project onto the grumbler a kind of negativity or hostility. This is a dynamic that happens within groups and quite often if one grumbler leaves the group or is expelled, Someone else has to take on that role of uh, being uh, a grumbler. So he has a kind of field theory, what I'd call a field I don't know if he calls it a field theory, but I'd call it a field theory of groups, which is less interesting than Hellinger's in the sense that Hellinger has this family dimension, this time dimension with innumerable in, in examples. He has hundreds of videos of his, te- of his doing this with different family groups. You can see one after another of these groups before your eyes in video. They're very interesting. But Mindel is a more abstract theory based on him working with groups in therapy sessions or in town meetings or workshops. We've got 30 people for a few days. It doesn't have the same kind of historical depth, but it's still dealing with the same kind of group model.
1: Well, the the idea of memory, then, Hellinger's interest in uh, memory in the field concept has to do with having the ancestors in the tableau, is that right? Yes well how do you understand the influence of an acknowledged or unacknowledged ancestor generation or or two back on this uh, the part of the family unit that consists of the currently living members how to understand that if it was to say two generations back you would never met what, what's the difference
2: well how, because i how understand hmm. it well, because say when, when you you have a partner, you get married or not married, as the case may be, you have children, you then have a family field, and assuming the parents are together, your expectations of the way you behave to your children, no one's ever trained you how to raise children, you've ne- were never, men- was never mentioned at school, so how do you know how to treat your kids? Well, the only model you've got... Is either looking at friends doing this? Or the one that runs deepest for you is what happened in your own family, and so you bring to the situation a kind of memory of the whole dynamics of your own, of your family of origin. And the same goes for your wife or your partner or the mother of the children. She brings to it the dynamics from her whole family of origin. Your you then you and she then have different expectations of how the family is going to work. Because you've got two different kind of fields, and she may expect quite different things of you and of the way you treat the children and of the kids than you expect of her and of the kids, and so on. And this can either lead to some kind of compromise, in fact, over time somehow it has to accommodate in some way, but it can also lead to a lot of conflicts. they are different models and expectations. So you bring these fields with you, as it were, unconsciously, because... They're the fields in which you, you were in that group there with a sort of field pattern. You're now in a new family group. And, and you helped, you bring that field pattern in and it sort of fuses with that of your partner. But that's the only, you can learn from other models. You can know other families. You can live with other groups. So basically, you bring it with you.
3: So then do you think cross-cultural marriages are more fraught than marriages within class and cultural uh, domains? Well,
2: that would be an empirical question. You know, one would predict that there would be certain kinds of problems. Say you take marriages between English people and Indians or Pakistanis, then... You could, do, you could do a model, the Hellinger-type model, of the Indian family field. You, know, you could interview Indians, look at Indian family structures. They'd probably have quite different sort of expectations mm-hmm. and field patterns from the people from nuclear families growing up in suburbs in England mm-hmm. or America. And if that's the case, you could actually predict what would happen mm-hmm. when you put these two... What kinds of conflicts are likely to result, what kinds of expectations man and woman from what the, these different kinds of backgrounds are going to have within this. And you could uh, you could talk to people who deal in marriage counselling with mixed marriages and see whether these are indeed the kinds of recurrent problems they encounter. So mm. you could, by talking to sociologists, social workers, and people who actually deal with dysfunctional families of various kinds, or functional families, you, you and you could this would be an empirical study on family dynamics from different backgrounds. So you could actually approach it all. You could make models and you could actually test them because there's all different kinds of families and fields coming together.
1: So I, I think the, uh, the model then of the family field would have to consist of more than the nodes and the connections and so on. The, the creation of the tableau with the patient of the director includes not only where the actors are standing but also which direction they're facing. Yes. And maybe they're posture or any kind of uh, body language representation um, exp- facial expression things like that
2: yes well it, it doesn't usually it it can involve posture
1: because when we think of uh, animal behavior in the sense of how you raise your children and so on in there there are many many attributes of a, of a node an individual member of the Family and their um, uh, attitude of uh, the servitude, or their willingness to sacrifice, compromise, and and um, all these things that we know varies from culture to culture. And mm. So the role they call the roles of the, the division of uh, labor of the mother and father, and so on. The, the the father drives the other species of birds away from the nest and and so on, so uh, some kind of modeling or even a simple representation of these behaviors would have to be attached, otherwise the model would be too simple to really uh, indicate the difference between uh, different generations and people from different families, coming from different family groups, marrying and and so on.
2: Yes, well, it might help. The geometry
1: wouldn't wouldn't be enough.
2: Well, it might help in, in starting these models with different species of birds, for example where you've got more standardised patterns and where you can actually observe what happens because there is a division of labour with birds and say a gander will defend the nest of the goose and young. some birds, play cuckoos, do it a totally different way of course and the baby cuckoos like a pathology in the nest of other birds so there are all different patterns among birds in the division of labour but they're fairly consistent within a species so if one had a model that would work for the family fields are more complicated human family situations are far more complicated than those of many animals and the beauty of looking at bird families is that you could have 20, 30 different kinds of behaviour already documented by naturalists the family life of different birds the number of little birds they have the way they teach and fly whether they have social groups or not like flocks, some birds have flocks, some don't Um, there'd be a lot of scope anyone who could come up with a good model would have a large amount of natural history at their feet as as territory to explore with this modeling technique because right now the kinds of models that ethologists have of groups are not terrible well their their focus has been distorted by the Richard Dawkins type people where it's all the selfish genes and it's seen as individual competition and struggle and maybe that perspective has something to offer to this modeling process but it hasn't led to any kind of emphasis or Um, attempts to model
3: the dynamics of these groups very effectively. The other thing you have to take into consideration is uh, a family is an organism evolving through time. The arrangement, the tableau, is a snapshot in time. Mm -hmm. It also, I mean, one could assume it's the patient or the client's relationship to their family at the present moment. But, on the other hand, if you're going to bring in ancestors, is the ans- was the is the ancestor influencing the field in as a child, as a middle-aged person, as an elderly person? Did their influence on the field change through time? Mm. And then you there seems to be sort of a dichotomy. There's a static now, but it's being modified by a shifting past as these ancestors exert differing influences on the situation depending on where in their own life history they are
2: Yes, and in in some tribal cultures like the Sora in India this is the kind of thing ancestors know, the role of the ancestors actually being documented by anthropologists there's a whole body of anthropological data here there's the Sora where my friend Piers Vitebsky was an anthropologist and I visited him in the field in Bihar no, in Orissa, in Karaput district of Arissa, He was living in the Sora village. He was living with the Shema. And they had a, a whole very complicated doctrine about what happened to you when you died. Say you died by suicide, you went to the sun. If you died of smallpox, you went to a kind of leopard spirit. And there were, so there were different groups. And the ancestors who died of that all went to the same place so you were with them and you wanted to get the living into your group when they died rather than someone else because you wanted to be with them so you are always competing death there mm. different modes of death containing ancestors competing for the living mm. and one, the best way to deal with this is to make peace with them and to make offerings every year there's these buffalo sacrifices for the ancestors so if you give blood and appease the ancestors then They'll be happier, and they won't feel so needy, and they're not going to try and grab you so much, and so you buy them off. But after two or three generations, their individual identity, their names begin to fade, and they're sort of liberated over time from that sort of obsessive thing until the souls are sort of set free, at which time they become butterflies. So when you see butterflies flying around you in the forest in the village, these are the liberated souls of distant ancestors whose influence is no longer hmm. particularly important in this whole economy of death and
1: recruitment. Hmm. Um, well, this is the memory model for the conspiracy theorists.
2: Yes, except that there's, there's lots of different... It is it's like a competing... It's not so much conspiracy... Well, there are sort of competing conspiracies. Yes and there are certain stones you can trip over in the forest there are certain ones that catch people who stumble Mm -hmm. and make you stumble in the forest but you have to be on good terms with the ancestors and what being on good terms with them above all means acknowledging them it means in a sacrifice of blood that you name and acknowledge the key ancestors Mm -hmm. you acknowledge all the dead in your lineage and if you miss anyone up they're going to be angry and if they're angry that means trouble so this is their cosmology the way they see it. And each tribe, each group has its own theory of the ancestors. The Japanese and Chinese, especially the Chinese, have an elaborate sense of the role and importance of the ancestors, with all these offerings they make of paper houses and whatnot. And I think one, if one were looking at this empirically in the human realm, I mean, one would perhaps have models for different species of birds, but coming back to the human realm, to compare the dynamics, which you could do partly from Anthropology and partly from modern sociology uh, of, say, Chinese families, typical Chinese families where there's a high degree of acknowledgement of the ancestors, with modern American families or Western families fragmented, dissociated, chaotic, where there's a very low degree of acknowledgement of the ancestors. And see what kinds of patterns occur there, and then you could look at Chinese Americans who may have abandoned all the ancestor worship thing and just assimilated to mainstream American society. Do they do they have particular qualities, or do they just become like Americans? Well, they stumble a lot. They
1: stumble a lot. They must because a lot of angry ancestors were accustomed to a great degree of.
2: Well, you'd expect that, you see, but then maybe they go on acknowledging them. A lot of the Chinese are very traditional, so. You know, there's a whole field of research here, the role of the ancestors, because every culture has its own way of dealing with them and its own way of acknowledging them. And In the Christian tradition, the festival of all Hallows and all Souls, Halloween is the eve of all Hallows, November the 1st, and All Souls Day, November the 2nd, is when requiem masses are offered for all the dead, all the departed, in which you can particularly hand in the names of particular ancestors or particular people don't have their names read out of the Requiem Mass so I do this myself so there's an acknowledged social form in our culture for acknowledging and naming the ancestors in in a traditional ceremony so um, there are great variations in our own culture between the degree to which people within different families and traditions acknowledge the ancestors the Roman Catholics do it more than the Protestants because of this phenomenon of requiem masses and the observance of All Souls Day which Protestants don't observe so um, it's a rich field for investigation you see in sociology, anthropology, model building, etc but as yet more or
3: less unexplored Do you think this these ideas could be extrapolated to non-human families with any degree of that you would learn anything
1: useful? Yes, it would have to be exactly the same, or perhaps simpler. Like uh, bird families, maybe all the behaviors that we could quantify are ones that mythologists had been traditionally observing, and they might have missed a lot of things. Like the role of the ancestors among birds, I don't think they ever noticed. Was the ancestral knowledge, are there any, you know, they're the bird families with three generations and
3: I guess you could ask what is a family does an insect come have a family
1: well, a termite certainly does on the social, social scales, insects scales, yes. do, but for instance uh well a social group, it wouldn't have to be a family whatever group that you can observe like you observe a school of fish you might not know the ancestry or the kinship diagram but um, if you could quantify the Observables, whatever ethologists observe about birds. If the gander is uh, aggressive and attacks other birds, so that would be a number from one to ten of aggression. Then the mother nourishes by going, and getting food, chewing it up, spitting it in their mouths, and uh, be nourished. But it's another parameter. So whatever the ethologists observe more or less defines the model that they have of bird groups or families, and likewise whatever the species have been observed, I don't think there is any mathematical modeling effort that's been going on among ethologists or anthropologists for that matter.
3: But really this theory is saying that it's genetic similarity uh, that... Uh emerges on thing, the strength of the bond. No, I, I veto well, that it religion. may or may not. So yes. twins would then be in a special position. Well, they are in a special position, as traditionally acknowledged and
2: revealed by modern twin research. They are. But genetic similarity is—you see but the mother and the father, the children have a genetic similarity to the mother and the father. Right. But the mother and the father have no necessary genetic similarity and it's also possible for members of a pack of wolves you know a wolf a male may join a group so you do have interchange between groups and exogamy marrying to a group outside the familiar group is the rule rather than the exception so, although you, so that one, at least one member of the group the father or the mother is going to have a different unrelated genetic nature so it's not a necessary feature of these bonds to have genetic similarity they may or may not have it, and it may be they're stronger in, in the social insects where you've got all these castes of workers derived from the queen and sharing half the genes of you know, their sisters with each other. They have a great many genes in common. Yes, this may give a kind of more telepathic-type connection between them, but um, I wouldn't put genetics as our key. It's
3: not going to help us much in this particular so can discussion. can you imagine a strong link between a person... And uh, their great grandfather's second wife, to whom they have no relation other than that.
2: Oh no! If it's the second wife, it would be relatively irrelevant. And and Hellinger, it would, you know, if one were doing this modeling, one would look at what he thinks. It's the family of origin. It would, what would matter is the time when your great grandfather, when your grandfather was born. Uh-huh. The family, his family of origin, it may later include when he's 12, 15, his father marrying again or something, because it would be the, the origin field you look at. And it. these later ones have relatively small effect. So, you know, they, they've already got their ideas about what weightings you'd give to these different people mm. in right. drama. Mm. But the difference between birds and people is that the general pattern of a bird family is given instinctively. It's by a morphic field, I would say, with such a deep and strong morphic resonance, you've got a kind of basic pattern that the whole species lies within. And if you have a deviant family, subsequent ones would get morphic resonance from their own deviant family of origin. But they'd also get resonance from sort of a huge runner in creative family life. Now, in the human world, where there's no genetically determined family structure, but because it's cultural, a great deal of human cultural evolution is sort of decoupled from genetics, um, it's the difference between Italian families and Jewish families and English families and American families and stuff. And families in New England and California is not particularly genetic. It's cultural. And the fact that families have changed through divorce, etc., etc., over the last hundred years, much smaller family sizes. Hundred years ago, most of our ancestors would have had six, seven siblings, Mine did. Now, you've got much smaller nuclear families, higher rates of divorce has changed. And so it's not genetic. It's much too quick. So genetics doesn't really help us much. And that's why in the human realm, the only model that you can rely on is not... A genetically inherited model because you don't have that whereas animals do but there's the cultural experience in which you grew up and the cultural models around you so that's why I think that the one could have a certain tr- class of models that would handle human families and bad families the human one's always going to be much more complicated
1: much more complicated because you have to model the cultures as well mm. So uh, maybe birds are easier because they're monocultural in a sense, but culture is also simpler.
2: But once a class of models had been built up in one field, it would be a matter of extending it to the other, wouldn't it? Yes,
1: that's why it would be easiest to start with the simplest models, simplest uh, cases, and then easily extrapolate uh, upward and turn it to human species and eventually to whales and so on.
3: Is it a a
0: metaphor? I hate to cut this off right here, but my energy levels are running low, and so I'm going to call it a day for now. But I'll get the remaining part of this trialogue out as soon as I can, hopefully in the next few days. I haven't uh, heard the end of this conversation yet myself, but already Rupert has given me a lot to think about along the lines of family morphogenic fields. In fact, it uh, may even open up a whole new line of dialogue between my cousins and myself. At least I hope it will. While I'm thinking of it, I want to say something about the sound quality in some of these podcasts. Believe it or not, I, I actually do edit the talks I play, and in some cases I've even been successful in cleaning up the sound significantly. But there are some instances, like today's trilogue, that were recorded with a hum in them. And as hard as I tried, I wasn't able to remove that hum without causing a little distortion in the speaker's voices. And so I decided that the hum was less annoying than the voice changes and left it just as it was recorded. Now I also know that there are among us here in the salon quite a few audio experts, like uh, Brian and John H. And I sincerely appreciate your offers of help, and that goes to all of you who have written to offer technical assistance. My problem is that I've got kind of a tiger by the tail here, and I don't want to let go until I fully understand my exit strategy. The tiger, of course, is the psychedelic salon. And to be honest, I never really gave any thought to having much of an audience, and so I figured it was a nice hobby that I could drop if I ever got tired of it. But uh, now it's grown into something much more than I expected, and to tell the truth, it's really giving me a problem with what I think of as my... Main life's work, which is to finish a novel I've been working on for over four years now. But don't get me wrong, I'm uh, doing these podcasts because there really isn't anything I'd rather be doing. (laughs) Uh, You writers out there know how easy it is to find something to do other than to uh, do what you came here to do. And uh, I do realize that if I'm ever going to get back to work on my new book, I'm going to have to figure a way to offload some of the back-end work involved in these podcasts and in maintaining several websites. So I've been working on a long-range plan to turn the salon into more of a community project, which, uh, of course, would allow us to bring in more of the work being done by many of our regulars here in the salon. My reason for mentioning this right now is that I know some of you are getting frustrated at my slow response to your suggestions and comments and offers of help. And I hear you loud and clear, and I'm pretty much in agreement with most of your suggestions. But I don't want to make any false steps, because uh, we've really got a nice thing going here, you know. Uh, When I'm recording these podcasts, I really do feel like I'm sitting there beside you and having a conversation. And I don't want to do anything that will change that feeling for me, because uh, if this becomes a job or something I'm not wanting to do most of the time well, then I suspect that we'll all lose interest in this interesting cyberdelic experiment. So uh, my plan is to continue exploring your ideas and come up with some suggestions that we can all kick around until we figure out how to continue growing our connections and exchanging ideas among the worldwide psychedelic community. And sometime after this year's Burning Man Festival, where I hope to kick around some of these ideas in person with you, I'll uh, let all of you volunteers and potential volunteers uh, know what I've come up with once uh, we get back from the burn. And, and uh, we'll figure out how all of you can become more involved in this fun project of spreading the truth about what I believe to be the only real hope for our species' long-term survival. And that is the hope that comes from increasing our understanding of psychedelic substances. Well, that's a little heavier note than I planned on ending on, but I want to get the first part of this talk out today so you don't think I've disappeared on you like uh, Queer Ninja has. And hey, Ninja, I hope you're out there in cyberdelic space grooving on some great music right now. We miss your podcast, my friend, but mainly we're worried about you. So uh, if you hear this and you're so motivated, please let somebody know that you're okay. And uh, hey, be well, my friend. Now, before I go, I want to mention, as always, that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Like 2.5 License. And if you have any questions about that, you can just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can also find at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, well, just send them to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. And thanks again to Jacques Cordell and Wells, otherwise known as Chateau Hayuk, for the use of your music here in the salon. And a big thank you again to Janice Gate Creative, James, Jason, John M., A Dime Short, Yarev, and William. This one was for you guys, because without the boost you gave me this morning, I probably would have put this off for another week. And, of course, thank you for being here. I really enjoy the time we spend together here each week, and uh, I know that you probably feel the same way. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.